thank you, dear Heavenly Father, for providing us by your grace this time to fellowship together. And now as we open your word together, collectively, and pray that your spirit would illuminate it to our hearts. We pray that you would fulfill your word with signs following on the inside. We pray that obstructions that our sin has erected between ourselves, our understanding, and the clear truth of your glory made known so succinctly, so systematically, so gloriously, so poetically, so powerfully through the pages of Scripture. We pray that every barrier would be broken down. Even as I pray that you would take, Lord Jesus, the fallible words of this vessel and the weak mind of this man and consecrate them so that you might do a miracle in blessing the giving and the hearing of the word so that it's not corrupted by our sin, but indeed holds us accountable for our sin and does its work on the inside, sharpening, quickening, instructing, perfecting your church so that we might uphold our great calling and duty and show forth your praise and your glory until such time as our bridegroom calls us home. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. privilege to gather together this morning to fellowship with the center of what we have in common being Jesus Christ and the substance of what we can know being before us in his word today. I want to invite you to turn to Psalm 18. Psalm 18 has been our point of reference for now three weeks. Two weeks ago we did a message, there was two messages along the lines of an election sermon of perhaps a bygone era. Two weeks ago we talked about Christ as the Lord of the weather and how God reserves the right to manifest His full character in every aspect of His creation and indeed reserves the right to employ the elements of nature themselves as extensions of His hand in both blessing as the rain falls in the just and the unjust and in judgment as he has summoned all through his scriptures storms by his will and command to bring the day of the Lord and a reckoning to the people. And for some it was the last day they would be alive on the earth, and for others it provided an opportunity, a great opportunity for repentance. The second week, last week, we covered how that David has confidence in the midst of this storm and this fearful revelation of a sovereign, powerful God who would send a global flood and save but eight, or who could speak to a storm and quiet it with a single word, or who would rain sulfur, brimstone, on the wicked cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. Yet, in spite of the revelation and the clarity David had, the reverential awe and awareness that he served a God with that kind of power, David opens his psalm with the kind of confidence and peace that I wish that I had in the middle of my storms and actually glean great inspiration from as I read these words. And now today, the title of this message, our third in the series of Psalm 18, is The Poetry of Providence. And I would like to explore just a few points on how David is uniquely qualified to communicate to us this treasured doctrine of the church that we have labeled providence through the ages, 
which reminds us quite simply that God undergirds purposes, promises, withholds, and to actually use three categories that are common in theology, He provides or He holds together the entire universe by the power of His hand. He preserves it. That would be category one. Preservation. And secondly, category two, concurrence. Even though wicked and evil events happen ever since sin and will on into the future until such time as the ultimate reckoning is complete, even though these things happen, none of them happens outside of the concurrence of the sovereign God and the final aspect of divine providence as the doctrine has been historically articulated is governance. Everything that God allows, everything that He purposes, is for a great and in some ways mysterious purpose whose vision He alone can fully contain, whose vision and picture He alone can sovereignly withhold in His inscrutable wisdom, but every event, every person, every consequence, every action, every atom in history is moving toward preservation, concurrence, and government. Last week we mentioned a few things about the unique calling and the unique gifts of David. I'll reread them just to remind us of the grid that enhances our interpretation as we read the Psalms. That is, they may contain more than we have thought thus far, and certainly more than the first glance. This grid that I have been working with and challenging myself to retain as I study the Psalms is, perhaps describing a few sentences here, it's enhanced when we consider the calling and gifts of David himself. In his calling with with respect to redemptive revelation, David serves as a typological, political, and personal contributor. So that's just to highlight that David was unique and his ability to communicate the truths of God in at least three ways. First of all, he was, it was typological. He was a type of Christ. He was a redemptive figure that foreshadowed who Christ the King would be. And this, until Christ appeared, the greatest King of Israel, can instruct us in his typological role and messianic truth. Secondly, political. David was a political contributor. He indeed was a physical king. He had, as we discussed last week, real challenges, real laws to make, real situations to deal with, real policies, foreign policy, domestic policy, and otherwise. We made the suggestion last week that it would do our legislators well to revisit the book of Psalms and see what the greatest king of Israel and the greatest poet, I think, in all of history might have to offer in relationship to their own calling. And then number three, David was gifted as a personal contributor. That is, David knew very closely, he was very closely acquainted with the sufferings of everyday life that you and I experience, and he writes with a certain introspection and an open book manner that everyone who counts themselves a wretched sinner, saved by grace, can relate to. So in these ways, David is unique, but not just in his calling, but also in his gifting, and that's what I'd like to explore a bit today in his giftings. With respect to his genre, namely the psalms that he employs, David is able to exercise additional perspectival flexibility. That's a fancy way to say the psalms provide a format, poetry, that gives greater perspective 
to deep truths. There's a greater flexibility in the song format, in the poetry format, in the imagery, and the analogy, in the pictures that David uses to give us a multifaceted, a more three-dimensional, if you will, picture of some of the glorious truths and realities of Scripture. So in summary, with this in mind, in identity and poetry, David is uniquely qualified to communicate great truths. And I think as we study Psalm 18, that this is just a singular example of David's calling and role. And what I'd like to explore this morning is how the doctrine and the truths of providence are so uniquely and powerfully communicated in just this psalm. That is, David employs poetry to communicate to us the richness of the conviction that Christ, that the Lord God, is in control of every aspect of life. I listened to an interesting interview this week. A Christian doctor, and not just Christian in name only, he was actually answering some questions by a talk show host, or offered by a talk show host, and this Christian doctor had, a, he felt, a particular calling to influence the medical profession, the medical community, the medical philosophy of America today, and to fight for returning to a Christian worldview in medicine. And his contention was, as far as he knew, there wasn't a single school of higher medical education that deliberately, consciously started with a biblical worldview, a Christian worldview, and then worked out its medical practice secondary to that, as an outgrowth of first beginning with Christian premises. And consequently, we can probably witness, as I have, and I'm sure you have, that the medical ethics and the trajectory of how we judge right and wrong and what procedures we employ we're, we live in a very dangerous time right now because we have nearly lost our points of reference and our moorings, and I'm just using medicine as one category. But that's a good example of how if you lose the value and even the subconscious affirmation of the doctrine of providence, so goes the rest of life, medicine included. This doctor made a profound statement. He said... First of all, he testified that he had to quit his medical profession because his medical malpractice insurance was going up $40,000 in the next year. He had committed, he hadn't had a claim or anything like that. It was just an astronomical increase that was imposed upon the doctors in the pool of risk because it had been increasingly more expensive to take the risk to actually practice medicine due to all the lawsuits. And the reason why there were so many lawsuits in medicine that he offered is not primarily because doctors are doing a bad job, that there is legitimate malpractice, not primarily because there's medical negligence prevalent in our uh, medical institutions today, but he offered the primary reason that frivolous medical lawsuits are so prevalent and are shooting up the cost of liability insurance to such high degree is because we, as a people, have lost the value and the understanding of the doctrine 
of providence. To me, that was a very powerful statement. And it was a great application. If you have an abiding assurance that your future is in the hand of an almighty God, not ultimately in the hand of your physician, you are far more likely to acquiesce to his sovereign will than you are to place unrealistic expectations of what a man can never do. A man can never give you assurance of your future. A man can never promise you perfect health and healing. He certainly can't give you eternal life. And only by the grace of God can he give you a lease on life for a little longer. It is the providence of God that allows us to ask the question why without having the answer that our flesh demands. Some why questions required in the fullness of the answer we would like to presume to be God himself. God asks us to put some eventualities in the providence category and live in peace knowing that you might not be able to pursue everything, every goal, every expectation according to what you think is ideal. You may be let down according to those expectations, but the doctrine of providence brings peace even when your world falls apart. David knew what it was like to have a world falling apart around him. Our world is increasingly falling apart around us, partially because the thought processes, the psyche of the average American, the peace, the security, the hope. Is it any wonder why we are statistically the most depressed generation by a measure of how many medications are offered? I'm told one in four of us in America are on some kind of mood-altering medication for depression, highest that it's ever been. Yet we have so many blessings at our disposal. Why is that the case? Again, I offer, because we've lost the value, the meaning, the understanding, and the psychological support and undergirding and spiritual hope and security and peace that can only come from the doctrine of providence, affirming that is our Lord Jesus Christ that holds this universe together by the word of his power. And of him and through him and to him are all things, even, God forbid, calamities that I may walk through. David understood this and communicated it so beautifully in his life's testimony and in this poem. Now, as we read, I would invite you to be a little patient as we go through quite a few verses, but see if you can ascertain, grasp, and feel a flavor of the providence of God undergirding David's hope as he writes, Psalm 18.1. I love you, O Lord, my strength. The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer. My God, my rock in whom I take refuge. My shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. I call upon the Lord, who is worthy to be praised. I am saved from my enemies. The cords of death encompassed me. The torrents of destruction assailed me. The cords of Sheol entangled me. The snares of death confronted me. In my distress, I called upon the Lord. To my God, I cried for help. From his temple, he heard my voice. And my cry to him reached his ears. Then the earth reeled and rocked. 
The foundations also of the mountains trembled and quaked because he was angry. Verse 8, smoke went up from his nostrils and devouring fire from his mouth. Glowing coals flamed forth from him. He bowed the heavens and came down. Thick darkness was under his feet. He rode on a cherub and flew. He came swiftly on the wings of the wind. He made darkness his covering, his canopy around him, thick clouds, dark with water. Out of the brightness before him, hailstones and coals of fire broke through the clouds. The Lord also thundered in the heavens, and the Most High uttered his voice, hailstones and coals of fire. Verse 14, he sent out his arrows and scattered them. He flashed forth lightnings and routed them. Then the channels of the sea were seen, and the foundations of the world were laid bare. At your rebuke, O Lord, at the blast of the breath of your nostrils. He sent from on high. He took me. He drew me out of many waters. He rescued me from my strong enemy and from those who hated me. For they were too mighty for me. They comforted me in the day of my calamity. They confronted me in the day of my calamity. But the Lord was my support. He brought me out into a broad place. He rescued me because he delighted in me. The Lord dealt with me according to my righteousness. According to the cleanness of my hands, he rewarded me. For I have kept the ways of the Lord and have not wickedly departed from my God. For all his rules were before me, and his statutes I did not put away from me. I was blameless before him, and I kept myself from my guilt. So the Lord has rewarded me according to my righteousness, according to the cleanness of my hands in his sight. Verse 25. With the merciful, you show yourself merciful. With the blameless man, you show yourself blameless. With the purified, you show yourself pure. And with the crooked, you make yourself seem torturous. For you save a humble people, but the haughty eyes you bring down. For it is you who light my lamp. The Lord my God lightens my darkness. For by you I can run against the troop, and by my God I can leap over a wall. This God, his way is perfect. The word of the Lord proves true. He is a shield for all those who take refuge in him. Who is God but the Lord? And who is a rock except our God? The God who equipped me with strength and made my way blameless. He made my feet like the feet of a deer and he set me secure on the heights. He trains my hands for war. My arms can bend a bow of bronze. You have given me the shield of your salvation and your right hand supported me. And your gentleness made me great. You gave a wide place for my, for my steps under me and my feet did not slip. I pursued my enemies and overtook them, and I did not turn back till they were consumed. I thrust them through so that they were not able to rise, and they fell under my feet. For you equipped me with strength for battle. You made those who rise against me sink under me. You made my enemies turn their backs on me, and those who hated me I destroyed. They cried for help, but there was none to save. They cried to the Lord, but he did not answer them. I beat them fine as dust before the wind. I cast them out like the mire of the streets. You delivered me from strife with the people. You made me the head of the nations. People whom I had not known served me. As soon as they heard of me, they obeyed me. Foreigners came cringing to me. Foreigners lost heart and came trembling out of their fortresses. The Lord lives, and blessed be my rock. 
and exalted be the God of my salvation, the God who gave me vengeance and subdued people under me, who delivered me from my enemies. Yes, you exalted me above those who rose against me and rescued me from the man of violence. For this I will praise you, O Lord, among the nations, and sing to your name. Great salvation he brings to his king, and shows steadfast love to his anointed, to David and his offspring forever. As we read that psalm from verse 1 all the way through to 50, there's an overview of celebration, of confession of David and the confidence that he has in the Lord that was a long time coming. The heading for a few points, how does the poetry of providence show itself to be distinctive in communicating these truths, or the poetry of providence contains the following distinctive elements. Number one, I'm not sure this is an element as much as it's just a note of context, it can take decades to write one song. There might be a war, a calling that God has on your life, a vision that he's given you, that he calls you to fight for, to stand on, and in faith follow him, that takes decades. You may not even see it in your lifetime, for you could get to the point where David could, in this psalm, to write something so comprehensively victorious. If you go to 2 Samuel, I'll invite you to actually turn with me there to chapter 18. I believe this psalm, the origins and the inspiration of it, began decades earlier than when David's pen finally hit the paper. In 2 Kings, we see this song, it reappears in chapter 22. And it's after David is actually quite old, and he's served quite a long time. And in the psalm, even in its introduction, it says, The choir master of Saul of David, the servant of the Lord, who addressed the words of the psalm to the Lord on the day when the Lord rescued him from the hand of all his enemies and from the hand of Saul. Well, that point didn't happen until way into his tenure as king of Israel. He, he didn't have that kind of victory. He was a king whose reign was attended by almost constant, incessant war. But if we go all the way back to the beginning of where I believe the inspiration of this psalm began, perhaps it could be in Second Kings, I'm sorry, did I say Kings? It's going to be 1 Samuel 18. In 1 Samuel 18, for the eye of those who do not affirm the providence of God, but judge the value of their life and their security just by outward success, this certainly would have been the high point of David's life. It would have been the moment that he never quite regained. If you saw success is through the eyes of what, the way the world typically judges. First uh, Samuel 18.7. I'll back up to 6. As they were coming home, this is after David has victory over the Philistines. When David returned from striking the Philistines, and this is Goliath, and the famous conflict between David and that great giant. They were coming home. David returned from striking down the Philistines. The women came out of all the cities of Israel singing and dancing to meet King Samuel, I'm sorry, King Saul, with tambourines, 
with songs of joy and with musical instruments. And the women sang to one another as they celebrated. And listen to the words of their song. These are just people spontaneously rejoicing in the streets after David struck down Goliath. These women are singing, Saul has struck down his thousands, and David his ten thousands. Imagine yourself with a young man coming back after that exploit in the parade through the streets. And flowers and whatever are being thrown in the air, and here you are, just a young man, a hero, a national hero, war hero, a general now, uh, for all intents and purposes, that has been responsible and whose person, uh, on whose personality people are paying their praise and the accolades and the medals of honor. There's a, Saul is very angry, and this saying displeased him. So there, not everybody was happy about David's exploits. In fact, the most important person in the nation was upset, Saul the king. They have ascribed to David ten thousands, and to me they have ascribed thousands. And what more can he have but the kingdom? And Saul eyed David from that day on. The next day, a harmful spirit from God rushed upon Saul, and he raved with, and he raved within his house while David was playing the lyre, as he did day by day. Saul had his spear in his hand, and Saul hurled the spear, for he thought, I will pin David to the wall. But David evaded him twice. Saul was afraid of David because the Lord is with him. He had departed, but had departed from Saul. Right there, from any other perspective, the high watermark of David's success in the rest of his life was virtually warfare. Yet I believe the inspiration for this song began when Saul, the king, turned his forces, his weapons, against David. Now, if we... Fast forward through David's enduring Saul's assault as a fugitive, and then assuming the throne, and then all his battles, and even uprisings by his own children, his own sons, until the time in 2 Samuel 22 when he records this psalm, it must be literally decades, perhaps 50 years or so, of relying on only, almost, God's providence. You have a purpose in this conflict to give him hope that his life has meaning, and that he can still rejoice. And finally, he gets to this end of this era in his life when the last enemy is vanquished, and he writes this song. How tempting would it have been for David to commit the great cultural sin that so many of us are guilty of, to entertain thoughts and feelings of nostalgia. We look back in our life, And we think of that moment with lust and envy, when things were easy, we were young, the world was in front of us, we had nothing but ambition, we were smiling with joy, there was nothing to get us down, and then life happened, right? How many songs are penned out of the lust of nostalgia? How many songs wish for that summer of 69 moment to be returned to them? Those days when they were young, how many elderly have you heard say, with a certain, you know, wishful thinking underneath, you know, their quip, I'm not as young as I once was. Do the elderly of today consider the providence of God as giving them something that only age and the Spirit using their experience can offer? 
namely a catalog, a reservoir of wisdom that is so full by this time that no younger person who hasn't experienced as much or God's favor in as many situations or has gone through as many trials can quite appreciate it. And in turn, does that young man sit at the feet of the sage and ask for advice? Or do we both, does a young man proceed forward in self-confident arrogance? And does the elderly man refuse himself the duty of both retaining and presenting wisdom? And do both betray the lust of nostalgia, wishing for an idealism that they'll never quite get, and all the while sacrificing the joy that they could offer when you realize God's providence for 50 years of war that could give you the motivation to write a powerful worship song that celebrates with joy in substance and wisdom the powerful hand of God using every aspect, discouragement, war, calamity, sickness, everything, triumphs, answers to prayer, endurance, perseverance, all coming together to present a picture of him that's much bigger than yourself. David was an amazing example of this. What we would think of as a turning point for the worst He's hated by the king, hated by enemies all around. David is no longer celebrated by women singing in the streets ever again. Now he's the object of oppression, tyranny, and war and conflict from his family, from surrounding nations, and the king himself for decades. Yet at the end of that journey, he is able to write this song that we just read. Amazing. Amazing. It cannot happen, it would not happen, without affirming that God is indeed sovereign and had ordered every element of his life for his greater glory and purposes. How much of this would be lost on us today if we weren't walking in the Spirit as he did? It can take decades to write one song. Secondly, the poetry of providence contains the following distinctives. Not only can it take decades to write one song, but secondly, cries of celebration in David's psalm here eclipse the cries of desperation. Before Psalm 18, we've read the psalms, we've gone through them from week to week. This is the first one we spent three weeks on. The others we covered a week each because they were shorter, quite frankly. Psalm 6, for instance, O Lord, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am languishing. Heal me, O Lord, for my bones are troubled. My soul also is greatly troubled. But you, O Lord, how long? Turn, O Lord, deliver my life. Save me for the sake of your steadfast love. For in death there is no remembrance of you. And Sheol, who will give you praise? I'm weary with my groaning. Every night I flood my bed with tears. I drench my couch with weeping. My eye wastes away because of grief that grows weak. Because of all my foes, depart from me, all you workers of evil. The Lord has heard the sound of my weeping. The Lord has heard my plea. The Lord accepts my prayer. All my enemies shall be ashamed and greatly troubled. They shall turn back and be put to shame in a moment. We were able to read that psalm much more quickly. Because David didn't spend as much time emoting in anguish as he did with the opportunity that victory and triumph provided him. Another way to think of this is, in our own spiritual lives, do we, have, do we nurture such a healthy doctrine of God's sovereignty 
that we are more motivated to worship Him for the great works that He has done than we are to pray and cry out in anguish when things are going wrong. Every Sunday, we meet in this church to celebrate the work that Christ's death purchased and His resurrection sealed. And do we do it with as much fervor and dedication and passion as we cry out to the Lord sometimes when we feel like we're in a real crisis? The Word of God is very clear. And there's even admonitions for kings. I think it's Deuteronomy 7 or 17. I usually get them mixed up. But in one of those chapters, the admonition for kings in the nation of Israel is that they wouldn't acquire themselves for themselves too many chariots, too many wives, and too much wealth. Why? Because in so doing, they would forget the law of God. They would stop worshiping the Lord, holding themselves accountable to truth, and in their affluence, the peace that their own strong arm could gain them, and in their relative prosperity, they would forget to cry out to their God. They would forget to search out His laws. They would, they would sing less worship songs. They would be less diligent in prayer. They wouldn't call for fellowship quite as much because life was too easy, as it were. David was a singular example of an earthly king, partially because he never let those things distract him from his duty to glorify the Lord in whatever circumstance. David took the occasion of victory to offer to the Lord in these two examples a psalm four times as long as the ones he typically penned in anguish. Cries of celebration eclipse the cries of desperation. Do we only celebrate or do we only beseech the Lord when we have a felt need? Or do we fellowship and cry out and worship to the Lord because of the needs that He's already supplied? And do we need to revisit the proportions of our energy and our prayer life assigned to those two categories and hold them accountable to the uh, providence as David's great poem evidences? Number three, distinctive elements of providential poetry, contains riches found only in the mind of endurance. Riches found only in the mind of endurance. David begins his psalm with nine personalized references to his praiseworthy Lord. Nine personalized references to his praiseworthy Lord. Verses 1 through 6, I love you, O Lord, my strength, The Lord is my rock, my fortress, my deliverer, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield, and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. I call upon the Lord, who is worthy to be praised. I am saved from my enemies. The cords of death encompass me. The torrents of destruction assailed me. The cords cords of shale entangled me. The snares of death confronted me. In my distress I called upon the Lord. To my God I cried for help. From his temple he heard my voice, and my cry to him reached his ears. I think David is giving us in poetic language a increased picture, an overflowing sense, an overwhelming beauty and strength and knowledge and affirmation of the Lord in his character in his ninefold uh, repetition of the name of the Lord, and each one adds to another aspect of who the Lord has been to him 
and who the Lord continues to be and who he has faith and, and in whom he has faith for the future. And my suggestion to you is, is that without the cords encompassing David for some 50 years and the torrents of destruction assailing him for some decades and the cords of Sheol threatening him on all sides, this ninefold affirmation of the Lord wouldn't be so forthcoming. It was because of the endurance that David evidenced in his life, because of his long-standing war, his confidence in the Lord that was tested over and over and over again. It was because of these cords and that would threaten to bring him down to death in itself and the distress that was surrounding him at every side for years and years, I believe, that offered David the mind from which he could from which he could get great riches, and riches that describe his Lord in terms like my strength, my rock, my fortress, my deliverer, my God, my rock of refuge, my shield, the horn of my salvation, and my stronghold. The silver lining to our own trials is that as the Lord brings us through them, we will know him in exponentially greater dimension. We will have so many more points of reference that will rush into our mind when we hear the name of the Lord our God. We will know Him as comforter. We will know Him as teacher. We will know Him as guide and confidant. We will know Him as the horn, the rock, the fortress, the deliverer, the foundation, the conquering king, the shield, the sword, Everything that David needed to endure. By the time he wrote this song, it was so evident to him that only the Lord had satisfied every category of need. And thus only the Lord deserved the glory at the time his song is written. Number four, distinctive elements of providential poetry would be the staggering scope of grace as it occurs to me. In verses 16 through 19, David recalls these trials. He sent from on high. He spoke to me. He drew me out of many waters. He rescued me from my strong enemy and from those who hated me, for they were too mighty for me. They confronted me in the day of my calamity, but the Lord was my support. He brought me out into a broad place. He rescued me because he delighted in me. David was familiar with the suffocating effects of his own sin and the circumstances around him, as we've mentioned. But he experienced deliverance. The Lord drew him out of many waters. How did the Lord do that? Well, in the darkest hour of his soul, when he had broken multiple commandments, he sent his prophet Nathan to David. And he, yes, pronounced the consequence that his sin deserved, but he also graciously revealed to him the weight of his error that David had deceptively convinced himself was justifiable. When Nathan stands before David, gives him the analogy of the sheep that the rich man stole because he didn't want to take one of his own flock to entertain his guests. And suddenly, David realizes that he's a thief, an adulterer, and a murderer, and he has carefully orchestrated all the events around him, taken advantage of his situation as king, 
prevent himself from being accountable for his sin. And in a moment, all this is revealed to him in one shocking revelation, one shocking sermon from the prophet. And God used that moment to write some of the greatest repentance, words of repentance that have ever been recorded in these psalms, and we'll get to them in due course. David repented of his sin. The Lord used his prophet Nathan to draw him out of many waters, to lift him out of that suffocating state of his own sin that would have separated him from his Lord, and David would have never been able to write this psalm if he hadn't been drawn out of many waters. And that's just citing one example. When he says, I wonder in verse 17 what he refers to, which enemies, when he says, He rescued me from my strong enemy and from those who hated me, for they were too mighty for me. At first, I I was thinking perhaps those that had greater technology, perhaps greater men of war, that, you know, nations around them that had maybe perhaps more chariots and horses, better equipped armor, better trained men, you know, a more able military in some technological sense. But when I read 2 Samuel in the context in which this was written, I don't think those armies that had more men and better weapons were what David is referring to when he says some of his enemies were too mighty for him. Because at this time, and up until the time of his national campaigns, David was surrounded by impressive men. I mean, single-handedly killing, slaughtering 150, 200 people. It was unbelievable. These guys were warriors of the highest caliber that history has ever known. They were able to thwart whole battalions single-handedly with just nothing but their arm and their sword. David, I don't think, was intimidated that much by superior forces in a technological sense. But David had some enemies that came against him that were far more mighty than anything a sword or a spear could represent. David had enemies from his own household. Let me ask you this, fathers. How many of you could pick up a sword and wage war against your own son? That is an enemy that is too mighty for any man with integrity. Any man who loves his family. That is an enemy too mighty. I couldn't pick up a sword and wage war against my son. The demands of God's providence the demand that David's situation placed on his acknowledging God's providence was overwhelming to me. Somehow, David was able to declare victory over his own sons and still write a psalm that affirmed that God is good, that He is powerful, His ways are just, He's in control, and I still declare my allegiance to him, and I still serve him. And David, by this time a wearied man, both emotionally and sure, and through the physical debilitating effects of battle, had a spirit that was strong. The Lord delivered David from enemies that were indeed too mighty for him. The staggering scope of grace. God's grace is powerful enough to bring you through adversity when those you love the most and are closest to you turn the sword on your own household. The perspective that David offers in his poetry has another distinctive element. 
the contrarieties become clear. The two sides become eminently clear. It would have been hard for David to separate these categories if it wasn't for God's providence, especially when some of his enemies ended up being the ones in his own household. But one element of this poem is apparent in verses 25 through 27. And here you can see the two categories that David recognized as standing in allegiance with God's providence or as standing opposed to his providence and would certainly be crushed. There was no other option. Verse 25, with the merciful, you show yourself merciful. With the blameless man, you show yourself blameless. With the purified, you show yourself pure. With the crooked, you make yourself seem torturous. You save a humble people, but the high eyes you bring down. You save a humble people, but the haughty eyes you bring down. They're bifurcating verses that separate into two categories. Those that affirm and take refuge in their sovereign God, and those who stand obstinately against Him, who will and must necessarily be in light of God's power and glory cast down. That's it. There will come a day... When sheep are led to one side and goats are herded to another. And that will be the final reckoning. And the lie of gray areas will be so clearly exposed as some invention from the pit of hell. There will come a day when wheat and chaff that grow together will be plucked carefully as to preserve its grain and stacked in the storehouses of our great Heavenly Father who harvests for His own every seed He's planted. And next to it, on the other side, will be a pile of tares, and the torch of hell itself will be lit underneath, and it will blaze for all eternity. On the one side will be the humble, and on the other side will be the haughty. On the one side will be the merciful, the blameless, and the purified, and on the other side will be the crooked, who will endure the torture of God for all eternity. And David experienced this kind of separation, this kind of bifurcation in his lifetime. By this time, after decades of seeing the mighty hand of God's providence, he was fearful to ever entertain a notion that he would exalt himself above the knowledge of God as he saw every enemy to God's glory vanquished, some indeed at the power of of his hand strengthened by his almighty God. How do we know that we are on the right side of providence? How can we be assured that we are not haughty and that we are not crooked and thus endure the torture of God's justice, rightly dispensed for our great sin against us? The answer for us, brothers and sisters in Christ, is only and for all time, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. After all, the only one who can be, because of his own death, merciful to us and rescue us from our sins, render us blameless on account of his transfused righteousness, by the power of his blood, purify us as white as snow, and then commission us for his kingdom work, those who began as poor in spirit, and continue with the humility of a blood-bought sinner to declare these very truths. The contrarieties become clear. 
in the doctrine of providence. David had a transcendent vantage point that the doctrine of providence afforded him. One of the distinctives in this poetry, there's nine labels that God gave, or that, that David gave to God, nine distinct ways that the Lord has revealed to him. He also has nine distinct thoughts on judgment, verses 7 through 15, each one of those nine verses says something fearful using the language of nature to describe the power of God in judgment. He also has nine verses and ideas of blessing. We won't go through all of these. This will become a 27-point sermon. But verses 28 through 36, and what I did in my study is I just lined them up. And I thought, I'll just draw a line, as it were, from verse 28, which says, For it is you who light my lamp. The Lord my God lightens my darkness. For David, when he was in the thick of it, in the, for, in the fray, in the war, the Lord was a light to him, a lamp, and the Lord lightened his darkness. But not so for those who are under the judgment of God, and by extension, David's own sword. We go over to verse 11. Out of the brightness before him, I'm sorry, he made darkness his covering. His canopy around him, thick clouds, dark with water. When the Lord came down and vanquished David's enemies, when he revealed himself in justice, it darkened the atmosphere around the enemies of God. How many times when God intervened upon the prayers and the cries of his people, did great confusion fall on the enemy camp and they turned their swords on one another? Sometimes they fled at a sound in the heavens. Sometimes they were so discombobulated that they were routed before 300 men with nothing, no weapons in their hand, but pitches, pitches and torches, pitches and torches. Amazing thousands. When the darkness of the Lord visited the camp of the Midianites that night, but then the light of Gideon, the instructions of the Lord, his word that illuminated to him exactly what to do, at that same moment in time, what was darkness for God's enemies was light for his redeemed. There's this transcendent vantage point that allowed David to see the circumstances of the last decades of his life from a heaven's eye view. And suddenly his heart was filled with confidence and song overflowed with victory. Because it was as if he were an angel on the wall. While 300 men routed a thousand, while a mighty man vanquished 250, while David was able to chase his enemies all around by the greater power of God. One more example, verse 29. For by you I can run against the troop, and by my God I can leap over a wall. And God's favor on David's life gave him grace to achieve against all odds. Not so for the enemies of the cross. We think of it in the full scope of redemption. As we visit verse 14, and he sent out his arrows and scattered them. He flashed forth lightning and routed them. On the one hand, David could run against the troop and leap over a wall. He didn't even have to employ the battering ram. He didn't even have to bring out these great weapons to work the exploits because God's favor was with him at some turns in the battlefield. Yet for his enemies, they were scattered and routed by the same hand that was David. You know what? i got to do one more. 
This one's awesome. In verse 34, he trains my hands for war so that my arms can bend a bow of bronze. He trains my hands for war so my arms can bend a bow of bronze. And remember, this is David celebrating at the end of his life the triumph of the Lord in every circumstance such that it leaves him no room but worship and celebration of victory. Now, if you go over to uh, match that up with what it looks like to be in Saul's shoes, for instance, on the receiving end of not God's favor, but of judgment, it might lead us here to verse 9. He bowed the heavens and came down. Thick darkness was under his feet. And as I read those words to the enemies of God's purpose in this world, it's as if heaven itself is like a bow drawn back by the almighty hand of God. And who can escape that arrow? You might deny it for a time in arrogance. And the Lord might let you ride to the heights of pride. Just so that when you fall, the pieces are harder to find. But that bent bow of heaven is always and perfectly employed to dispense with justice at its perfect time for those who lie outside his favor. But on the other hand, what about us weaklings, us weaklings, and us frail sinners who now count ourselves in God's army? Oh, by supernatural power, he gives us strength to bend a bow of bronze when he calls us to do great exploits for his glory. And this is the transcendent vantage point that the poetry affords us that allows us to take such confidence, victorious confidence, that even in the thick of the fray, when the enemies outnumber us by in multiples of 100, 1,000, or whatever, we will overcome. Because we stand with the one who bows, bows the very heavens and aims it at the enemies of his throne. The final point, the, the author's risk is heaven's reward. You know, David might have celebrated this moment, again, getting back to the beginning, trying to recreate the time when the women were singing and celebrating in the streets, when he was the great war hero with the universal accolades of the whole society, say Saul, and to kind of publish his exploits at this time. Look what I've done. The newspaper paper headline in ancient Israel reads, Look at this, a map that shows I have systematically eliminated every foreign threat. And he really takes every advantage of propaganda and rhetoric to convince the people that he is the greatest king of all, to celebrate his exploits and to galvanize political will around him, and to really solicit just the affirmation and the worship and the praise of the people the way leaders do these days. But David was not cut from that cloth. He said in verse 46, The Lord lives, and blessed be my rock, and exalted be the God of my salvation. He does it for him, the Lord helped him. Verse 47, He gave me vengeance and subdued the peoples under me, who delivered me from my enemies. Yes, you exalted me above those who rose against me. You rescued me from the man of violence. For this I will praise you, O Lord, among the nations, and sing to your name. Great salvation he brings to his king, and shows steadfast love to his anointed, to David and his offspring forever. 
Instead of commissioning his biographer to write a great story about his life, instead of dominating the headlines in the 24-hour news cycles that they had cable TV at that time indefinitely because of his great exploits, David instead, as we go back right to the introduction of this whole psalm, he says, To the choir master, a psalm of David, the servant of the Lord, who addressed the words of this song to the Lord on the day when the Lord rescued him from the hand of all his peoples and from the hand of Saul, he said. David simply wrote a worship song that glorified God, gave it to the choir master, and said, in as many words, don't celebrate me, celebrate our Lord. He is the one who has earned, who has purchased for us the victory. He is the one who has vanquished our enemies. And our risk is his reward. And really it was no risk at all. Because the sovereign hand of God providentially kept us through every trial and threat and bought for us, purchased for us, and declared into our hands the victory that he had already won. Let's close in prayer. Oh, Heavenly Father, as I bring this message today, I realize that I myself am a relatively young man. But I pray that the Spirit would supply where my experience lacks to give me a deep sense of love, appreciation, and a spiritual undergirding of your sovereignty such that I wouldn't waver in my faith. Now, for every one of us, I pray the same, that the testimony of David, as he writes with such clarity and confidence, would be our own testimony. Father, I'm sure that there are many in this room, as we fellowship today, who can relate to David's angst and anguish, which he honestly vented in other psalms. But now I pray that they would be able to relate to the confidence, the victory, and the victory that he exudes as he worships in light of your character and the truth of who you are. Lord, I pray that as we grow, and nurturing for ourselves, by your Spirit working in and through us, affections that are in accordance with your truth revealed, it would give your warriors that yet remain with work to do, with battle lines to push forward, with ground to gain for a kingdom to advance and a king's rights to exalt, or to give us, your servants and soldiers, great hope, great courage, and a spirit that would not grow weary in well-doing, but would be found diligently occupying the great work of our God until the day that you return. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.